Hi, this is Tawny from the Dirty Bits Podcast, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now, on to today's show. Warning. This episode contains details of the death of a young child, including some instances of sexual assault and graphic violence, and may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In a recent episode of The Apex and the Abyss, and if you already aren't listening to that show, I would highly recommend it. So, the host presented an episode about the 1994 rape and murder of seven-year-old Megan Kenka. If you haven't heard of her, you may have heard of the law enacted in her name, Megan's Law, which was a series of legislation that called for the creation of the Sex Offender Registry and a statewide database, as well as community notification of registered sex offenders when they moved into a neighborhood. The reason her death prompted these changes in legislation was because the crimes committed against her were perpetrated by her neighbor, Jesse Timendakis. He had had two prior convictions for sexually assaulting young girls in 1979 and 1981. In his first case, he pleaded guilty to the charges of attempted aggravated sexual assault of a five-year-old girl in Piscataway Township, New Jersey. For that, he was only given a suspended sentence, but he failed to go to court-mandated counseling. Therefore, he was sent to Middlesex Adult Correctional Center for nine months. Two years later, in 1981, he pleaded guilty to the charges of sexually assaulting a seven-year-old girl. For that, he was incarcerated at the Adult Diagnostics and Treatment Center in Avenel, New Jersey for six years. So fast forward to 1994, Tim and Dacus was living across the street from Megan and her mom with two other convicted sex offenders, sharing a residence with him. Of course, no one had any idea Tim and Dacus, a dangerous sexual predator, was residing so close. Hence, the call for Megan's law legislation. And as for Megan, on July 29, 1994, Tim and lured her into his home by offering her the chance to see his new puppy. After raping the seven-year-old, he smashed her head into a dresser, placed two plastic bags over her head, and strangled her with a belt until she died. He placed her in his truck and proceeded to assault her one more time post-mortem. He then put her body inside a wooden toy chest and dumped it in a nearby park. When Megan's mom realized that her daughter was missing, she had even questioned Timendakis, asking him if he had seen her. He would turn himself in the next day, confessing to what he'd done, 
and he even led investigators to her body. He was tried and convicted and sentenced to death, but his death sentence was commuted to life in prison in 2007 when New Jersey abolished the death penalty. I'm bringing up Megan's case today because I wanted to talk to you about our neighbors. Megan's mother, as well as many others, feel as though if there had been such a thing as Megan's law in place in 1994 when she was murdered, that Megan would still be here today. I can't say with 100% certainty if that is true or not. We'll never know. Tim and Dacus obviously was and is a very troubled human being. And Megan's law has its critics. Have you guys ever searched the sex offender registry in your area? I did once after Oprah had recommended it on one of her episodes. And it's literally one of the scariest things to see the map of your neighborhood light up like a Christmas tree. It was a big, huge reality check. And I actually ended up regretting ever looking at that map. Would I have been better off if I'd never looked at the offender registry map? Probably not. But it actually didn't cause me to feel or change anything about the way I did things on a day-to-day -day basis. Map or no map, I don't think any of us live in a state of complete oblivion when it comes to the dangers around us, especially us who are true crime enthusiasts. We take precautions, at least I hope we all do, to keep ourselves and our children, our families, our homes, even our pets safe from dangers. Yet I still can't help but think maybe, just maybe, Megan would be here if her mom had somehow known what was lurking across the street. She could have warned her that there was a dangerous man living over there and forbid her from ever going near him. But would that instill fear in her child? Is that the answer? Making our kids fearful? I don't like the idea of that at all, but it is better than the alternative. Who's to say Megan wouldn't have been enticed by the promises of playing with a puppy regardless of what her mom had said? Kids aren't always thinking about the consequences of the things they do. Could the neighbors have banded together to keep an eye on each other's children, knowing that there was a predator in their midst? Perhaps. They might even begin to try and rally to get those predators out of their neighborhoods. But where's the fairness in that? How is that fair to the offender? Say, if we're going to even afford them any measure of fairness considering the nature of their crimes. And worse... How fair is it to anywhere else the sexual offender might move to? They've got to live somewhere. I realize that there are some controversies surrounding Megan's Law, but I'm not going to get into those today. I actually have a bonus episode that I included in the Patreon feed that was sort of a follow-up to the Polly Class episode, where I discussed some of the laws that were enacted following her abduction and murder. In that, I did go over some of the controversies surrounding those laws, including Megan's Law. So maybe I'll go ahead and release that bonus addendum to this episode later this week. 
The reason I'm talking about neighbors is because today's story involves a neighbor, a very, very dangerous neighbor. We all have neighbors, right? Most of us do anyway. Do you know all of your neighbors? How well do you know them? I'll be honest, I really don't know my neighbors all that well. Even if we did make a point to familiarize ourselves with our neighbors, are we ever really truly certain as to who they are? Do we ever really know what's lurking out there? You've heard of the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, that's exactly what was going on in the neighborhood I'm going to tell you about today. In this episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Sandra Cantu. By all accounts, eight-year-old Sandra Cantu was quite the little gem of a child. She lived in the Orchard Estates Trailer Park, located in Tracy, California, a town located almost right smack in the middle of the state in San Joaquin County. Sandra was a sweet, bubbly, kind, helpful, charming little girl. She was simply a joy to be around and a joy to know. Everyone in the Orchard Estates knew Sandra, and she enjoyed helping her neighbors. She craved attention, and she loved to please. She was outgoing, social, delightful, playful, and she easily made friends with many of the other children who resided in Orchard Estates. And every parent was always delighted to have her over to play with their children. Well, almost every parent. There was one neighbor that, on the surface, seemed to enjoy the other kids in Orchard Estates playing with her six-year-old daughter, Madison, and that included Sandra. But, as it would turn out, this wasn't really the case. That neighbor was 28-year-old single mom, Melissa Huckabee. She lived in the estates with her grandparents and her daughter. Her grandfather was a pastor at the local church just around the corner from where they lived. He was a well-respected member of the community, and everyone was familiar with him as well as with his family, his granddaughter, and his great-granddaughter. Melissa Huckabee was a Sunday school teacher at his church, and Madison was in attendance every Sunday. As far as anyone could tell, Melissa Huckabee was just your average, everyday, church-going, God-fearing, doting mom. On Friday, March 27, 2009, Sandra arrived home from school, as always, anxious to look for some playmates in their Orchard Estates trailer park community. It was a Friday, so homework can wait, right? It's the weekend, so the second grader was looking forward to spending time with some of her friends before dinner. I wanted to try to give you an idea of what the Orchard Estates was like. There were about a hundred residents, and it was a very tight-knit community 
According to Sandra's aunt, Andy Chavez, all the residents knew and were very trusting of one another. There were lots of kids in the Orchard Estates, and it was kind of a given that everyone kept their eyes on everyone else's children just to make sure everybody stayed safe, as well as behaved, of course. After several hours passed, Sandra's mom, Maria, began to grow concerned about her daughter when she failed to return home for dinner, as she was expected to be back in time for. Maria began calling around to some of Sandra's friends, but it quickly became apparent that nobody had seen Sandra for hours. Maria had very explicit rules for Sandra. Aside from making sure to be home in time for dinner, and one of them was to make sure she would never wander beyond the confines of the estates. And Sandra was very good at obeying her mother's rules. She would not have gone outside the estates. Before any of us begins to cast the first stone here, not that I think any of you would, but you might be tempted. Heck, even a small part of me, if I were listening, I might be too. We might be quick to jump on Sandra's mom for allowing her eight-year-old daughter to go door-to-door looking for friends to play with. That maybe she's a little bit too young to have such free reign around the Orchard Estates. You and I may have done differently, but I don't know if we can truly speak to that. Remember, I describe the community as tight-knit, and everybody knows everybody kind of a place. I don't live in a community like that. So no, I would not be inclined to allow my daughter that much autonomy when she was eight years old. But if I had lived in a small community where I wholeheartedly trusted all of my neighbors, I might feel differently. So for me, I understand Maria's willingness to trust the neighborhood she lived in. And if you feel differently, that's perfectly fine too. We can discuss that. As long as it doesn't reach Madeline McCann levels of squabbling. Maria's mom began searching the estates for Sandra, calling out her name, but to no avail. It quickly became apparent that Sandra was nowhere to be found. Maria looked everywhere, and soon, she was filled with dread. She just knew something was terribly wrong. A little bit before 8 p.m. that evening, Maria contacted the Tracy Police Department to report her daughter missing. She told the operator that she has a missing eight-year-old and the last time she saw her was around three o'clock that afternoon when she told her mom she was headed over to a friend's house to play and never returned. Of course, the police department flew into action. As we all know that those first few hours are crucial when searching for a missing child. Studies have shown that of all the children that are kidnapped and murdered, Most of them are murdered within the first three hours of having been taken. The more time that passes, the least likely they are going to be found alive, with some exceptions, such as the women in episodes 28 and 29, Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina DeJesus, or J.C. DeGard, or Stephen Stainer, or Elizabeth Smart. These were children who were abducted and recovered alive after a long period of time, especially J.C., Stephen, Michelle, Amanda, and Gina. They were missing for years. 
We sometimes think of these cases as miracles because it's so rare for so much time to have passed and for the missing to be found alive. It used to be in the 70s and 80s, and maybe even before then, that pretty much every single police department in the United States would tell families of a missing person that they had to wait a set amount of time, either 24 or 48 or 72 hours before they would be allowed to file a missing persons report. Well, this is no longer a thing, thank goodness. I don't even know why it ever was. Well, maybe for adults when there was no apparent foul play, I kind of get it, but for kids? I'm thinking especially for older kids like teenagers, that they were sometimes written off as runaways or they joined a cult or something. So police weren't quick to jump on the case. But that's not the thinking anymore, at least I hope it isn't. Even if a kid is suspected to be a runaway, police need to be on it quickly. And really, not only to do everything they can to bring that child home, but to offer help and support, because obviously there are other issues going on if a child is running away. But anyways, that's a story for another episode. Nowadays, police department responses to missing person reports is much, much faster. And this is what happened when Sandra was reported missing. Police got a description of what Sandra was wearing when her mom last saw her. They found that Sandra lived with her mom and her grandparents and three older siblings. And none of them reported actually seeing Sandra playing anywhere that afternoon. But Sandra's grandfather had installed a video surveillance system on the outside of his mobile home because he had been having troubles with vandalism. And this video camera did, in fact, capture footage of Sandra walking along the street in front of her house at approximately 4 p.m. that afternoon. If you want to see the surveillance footage, it's available on YouTube. You can see her walking by the house, and she had quite a bouncy walk. She was wearing a pink Hello Kitty t-shirt and black leggings. And just before Sandra is out of the frame of the video, you can see her suddenly change the cadence of her walk. She slowed down, and you can clearly see her turn her attention to her right. Something or someone out of the range of the camera caused her to look in their direction. These would be the last images of Sandra ever captured. The video helped police narrow the time frame as to when Sandra possibly disappeared. Police first entertained the possibility that Sandra's dad, Daniel Cantu, may have had something to do with her having gone missing. Her parents were either divorced or in the process of divorcing, and they were locked in somewhat of a contentious battle over child support. So of course, police have to investigate the possibility that it was her own father that took her. From what I was able to find online, Sandra was the only child between Maria and Daniel. So that would mean Sandra's older siblings were from a previous relationship. And that would be why police focused on him. He's the father only to Sandra. But apparently, he hadn't been a presence in her life since she was really young. And I'm not exactly sure what that actually means because she was really young. Perhaps infancy or toddlerhood? I could not find any clear answers to that. Regardless, police were able to come to the determination that Sandra's dad 
was not in the area when she disappeared. He was eliminated as a person of interest in the case. As night fell, concern was turning into fear for Sandra's loved ones. It was the end of March in California, and during the day, the weather is typically pleasant throughout the entire state, and there might not even be a need to wear a jacket or a sweater, but the nights can get very chilly. For example, I took a look at the weather for the city of Tracy on my phone just as I was writing this, and we can kind of get an idea what the weather is like because it is the same time of year. And each day next week, the temperature goes from the mid-60s to the mid-40s, so about a 20-degree variation from day to night, and that would be about a 10-degree variation in Celsius. In the video footage, Sandra doesn't have a jacket on, and her loved ones are worried about her being lost at night, in the cold. The next morning, as soon as there was light, volunteers came in droves to take part in the search for the missing eight-year-old. A helicopter unit with FLIR capabilities, which stands for forward-looking infrared that detects heat, was brought in to search from the air, and on the ground, searchers were going door-to-door -door canvassing the neighborhood. Searchers checked in with nearby businesses to see if anyone happened to see any sign of Sandra, but there was nothing. No one had seen the little girl. In making matters more challenging, there were no witnesses to the abduction. There was no vehicle to identify and to look for, and no real good leads on a suspect. Tracy police were frustrated. So the department issued an urgent nationwide all points bulletin on Sandra. And what this does is it alerts a unit in the FBI called the Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Unit, or CARD for short. The CARD unit is always ready to respond immediately at the onset of a child abduction, and it is comprised with the Bureau's leading experts in child abduction. The CARD unit has the ability to mobilize anywhere in the United States within four hours. When the special agents with the CARD unit arrived in Tracy, California, one of the first things the chief of police asked them was what were the chances that Sandra was still alive? The agents had to be honest. By the time they arrived in Tracy, according to them, there was a 97% chance that she was already dead. But they were there with the sole purpose of focusing on the 3%. When the special agent in charge of Sandra's case was shown the video footage of her, the very last images, it was the first time in his career that he had ever seen the final moments when a child was last seen. Of course, it had a deep impact on him emotionally. If you go to YouTube and you watch the video too, I'm sure many of you would feel the impact as well, especially if you're familiar with the story and you know how it ends. The FBI's first task is to question every single resident who lives in the Orchard Estates as I told you earlier, Sandra was quite the popular little girl amongst the residents, so nobody's off the FBI's radar. According to her mom, Sandra basically talked to everyone in the trailer park. She was a people pleaser. She would offer to help neighbors with their chores or with their yard work. Of course, I didn't know Sandra, 
but from everything I read and saw online, she was quite an amazing little girl. The FBI was made aware that Sandra, as well as most of the children who lived in the Orchard Estates, were allowed to roam free as long as they didn't leave the property. Every single resident knew Sandra, and all of them openly welcomed her into their home. And because of this, it did pose a challenge for agents who were investigating the case because every home in the park needed to be looked at. Along with a door-to-door search and interviews, authorities also erected traffic stops and roadblocks. Every vehicle coming and going was stopped and searched. There just weren't any leads coming in yet. Suddenly, a tip came in from one of the concerned neighbors in the Orchard Estates, the mother of one of Sandra's best friends. She sent a text to Sandra's mom to inform her that her large Eddie Bauer suitcase was stolen from her driveway. Just about the same time Sandra went missing. I'm not sure what Sandra's mom's initial reaction was to that text, but the implication it seems would be that the concerned neighbor thinks that the stolen suitcase and Sandra's disappearance could be related. How scary would that have been for Sandra's mom? I don't know what I'd make of a text message like that, especially in the kind of state of panic Sandra's mom must have been in at the time. It must have raised a whole bunch of red flags because she went straight to the FBI and told them about this weird text that she got. Not only is it a strange text, I find it strange that the neighbor sent it. And we will get much more into that aspect of this story a little bit later. Meanwhile, the FBI was working to try and figure out a profile of the person who took Sandra to try and narrow their search. One concerning aspect of the case is the geographic location of Tracy. The city's motto is, think outside the triangle. And the reason for this motto is because the city is located in a geographic triangle formed by three freeways. The 205 on the north, the 5 on the east, and the 580 on the southwest. What this means is, it would be quite simple for someone passing through happen to spot Sandra, snatch her up, and hop back on the freeway and be long gone. And with the possibility of that type of stranger abduction, the chances of locating Sandra become very slim. The FBI's Behavioral Analyst Unit also began to form a profile as to who the abductor might be. They determined that investigators need to be looking mainly at males who either knew Sandra or knew of her and were residents of the Orchard Estates. So the FBI began focusing on male neighbors who have interacted with Sandra in the past year or so. They narrowed their focus down even more by looking at Caucasian males between the ages of 25 and 40, with perhaps some minor troubles with the law in the past, possibly for offenses involving child pornography or some level of sexual assault or lewd act. This profile is based purely on statistics from studies conducted regarding child abductions. In reality, anyone could be capable of abducting a child. But that's all they could work with because they had no idea where Sandra went missing from and they had no clue who did it. There was no crime scene to be examined and there was so little information to work with when trying to develop this criminal profile. 
But the one thing the FBI is almost certain of, that Sandra's abductor is someone who was close to home, someone who knew her well, someone whom she trusted to go with when she was seen turning and looking in their direction. They're not really thinking that this was a stranger abduction. The FBI, along with the Tracy Police Department, organized a task force that included as many as 65 FBI agents and 25 Tracy detectives. They set up an emergency command center at the police department headquarters, and they had people staffed 24 hours a day manning the phone tip lines. They were doing everything they could to get Sandra's name and picture out there to as many agencies as possible. Sandra's family talked as much as they could to the media to spread the word of her abduction. Along with the thermal imaging helicopters, officers brought in dive teams, cadaver dog handlers, as well as hundreds of volunteers on foot. All resources available were being tapped in the search for Sandra. It would be one of the largest searches in Northern California history. The sentiment for everyone dedicated to searching for Sandra was that this was akin to searching for their own child. As her aunt would put it, Sandra became Tracy's daughter. And they were not going to give up. And Sandra, not being alive anymore, as far as they were concerned, was not a thought that they were going to allow to seep into their minds. They had to operate with the hopes of finding her, but they know that time is of the essence. They know that time is most certainly working against them. The Tracy police chief turned her attention to the video footage of Sandra when she was last seen. She looked at it over and over and over again. She could see that something grabbed Sandra's attention, but what was it? In looking at that video footage, she did notice that eight minutes after Sandra was last seen, the next thing that appeared on the video was the neighbor's car driving by. That will provide an important clue later on in the investigation once they get a closer look at that vehicle. Tracking dogs are brought in, and Sandra's scent was tracked to the corner at the end of the street that she was last seen walking on in that video. Her trail ended there. Next, investigators turn to the list of registered sex offenders, or those that have some sort of criminal record who live in the Orchard Estates. And they are shocked to find that the list of people to sort through is long. There were a couple of men who shot to the top of the list pretty quickly. One was a man who had interacted with Sandra at the neighborhood swimming pool a couple of years earlier when she was six years old. He approached her in the pool and under the guise of helping her get her hair out of her face, in doing so, he leaned in and kissed her on the lips. When investigators spoke to the person of interest about this incident, he admitted to it, but he brushed it off as harmless, that he was simply being overly affectionate towards Sandra. He also divulged some pretty disturbing facts about himself, in that he did have strong sexual fantasies about young girls, particularly around the ages of 9 or 10 years old. Of course, this was really alarming for investigators to hear. Could they be possibly looking at the man who did harm to Sandra? I find it kind of strange that he would admit such a thing, but then again, he may have felt like he needed to be as candid as possible, that it would be better for him. Like if he came across as if he had nothing to really hide or whatever. 
And this person would not be the only person of interest investigators would run across in the Orchard Estates. The very same afternoon Sandra went missing, the manager of the estates told investigators that he had confronted a man driving an ice cream truck. And this one in particular, he was very wary of because he wasn't familiar in the neighborhood. The park manager didn't trust him to bring his truck onto the property. He spotted the driver of the ice cream truck talking to the kids and he didn't like it. There was just something about the guy that made some of the residents of the estates feel really uneasy. He had apparently tried to go there previously and he was asked to leave. And that afternoon when Sandra vanished, he had been asked to leave again. With these types of shady individuals hanging around, the concern grew that perhaps because Sandra was always so sweet and friendly that someone out there took advantage of her trusting nature. And by the end of the first full day of searching, the sun set with no sign of Sandra anywhere. The community came together that evening to hold a vigil for Sandra, hoping and praying and supporting one another as they struggled to cope with her disappearance. Investigators were also in attendance at the vigil as well, not only to join in supporting the family and the community, but also to scope out the crowd to see if they could spot anyone at all acting or looking suspicious. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a woman comes running and screaming through the crowd to approach one of the officers at the vigil. She's frantically yelling that she's found something, she's found something. It says Cantu and begs investigators to follow her. She starts running towards whatever it is that she found. And they're following behind her, wondering what the heck is going on here. She took them over to where the mailboxes for the Orchard Estates were located. And she suddenly dropped to the ground literally in hysterics. She pointed at a piece of paper on the ground, screaming at officers, it's right there, it's right there. They shined their flashlights on the small piece of paper, ripped from a spiral notebook, and it reads, Cantu locked in stolen luggage, thrown in water on Bacchetti and Whitehall, signed witness. Its message immediately sent chills down the spines of investigators. They carefully collected the note and took it in as evidence, and it was taken to the lab to be analyzed. As bizarre as the note was, they were immediately suspicious of it. One reason is because there are seemingly deliberate misspellings in the note, and not of the words that might be commonly misspelled, like bacchetti, but the word on is spelled with two N's, O-N-N. And the word stolen is misspelled S-T-O-L-I-N. An FBI forensic handwriting analyst took a look at the note and quickly determined that it appeared the person who wrote it was attempting to camouflage their own natural way of writing. And the questions remain, what does this note mean? Is there any truth to this? Is Sandra locked in a suitcase, submerged in water at the specified location? Or is this an attempt to steer investigators in the wrong direction? They needed to know. They needed to follow this lead. So the next day, at first light, a search of the bodies of water 
near the location specified in the note was organized. And this was a little more than two miles away from the Orchard Estates. But investigators really don't know where to begin their search. That particular intersection of Bacchetti and Whitehall is near a river, as well as a farm. There are a number of ponds where manure runoff is collected. So you can imagine how disgusting those ponds are. They're filled with sewage runoff and it will prove to be impossible to dive in to search. They are not going to be able to determine if Sandra is in those ponds or not, which is a complete letdown for investigators and Sandra's family. That note, and I can imagine investigators just staring at the thing, trying to figure out who in the world wrote it. Where did this come from? Who held the pen that did this? How can this note lead them to Sandra? With no real direction to go and no real leads to follow, investigators decided to back up a little bit and speak to the woman who led them to the note in the first place. That neighbor who just so happened upon it as she was on her way to the vigil, the one who came at them frantically screaming, 28-year-old Melissa Huckabee. They needed to talk to her, and when they did, they quickly realized that she was the exact same person that sent that text message to Sandra's mom that a piece of luggage had been stolen from her driveway. Okay, so what are the chances, right? You just so happen to have a piece of luggage disappear from your driveway. Oh, and you happen to be the same person who just so happens to find this ominous note supposedly leading investigators to the location of Sandra's body? I say the chances are slim if you ask me. Something fishy is going on here with this Melissa Huckabee character. They began questioning her about finding the note and she began telling them about the missing suitcase. She explained that she became very, very worried that something terrible had happened to Sandra, especially when she found that note about the suitcase because she had had a suitcase stolen. And her words, the suitcase is large enough to fit a small child inside. Okay, I don't think I would ever choose those words to describe the size of my missing suitcase. I might describe the color, the brand. I might even use my hands to give an estimate as to the size, like it's about this wide and this long, you know? I wouldn't say it could fit a small child or it could fit a toddler. It'd be like if I were trying to sell my car and as a selling point, I'd tell the buyer that you could fit two bodies in the trunk, maybe three. It's just not a normal thing in describing luggage capacity or trunk capacity for that matter. Investigators are beginning to see some red flags with this Melissa Huckabee person. The thing is, she's a friend of Sandra's family, a neighbor who is well known to everyone in the Orchard Estates as she lives there with her grandparents. Remember, her grandfather is a pastor at the church around the corner. Her daughter, Madison, is best friends with Sandra. Sandra's family unequivocally trusted Melissa, the pastor's granddaughter, the Sunday school teacher, the doting mom, so what is the deal with the suitcase and the note that she found? Weird, right? Well, 
it gets weirder. While Melissa appears to be the unlikeliest of persons of interest, and she isn't even a statistical match to the FBI profile of the person most likely to commit this sort of crime, the sheer fact that she kept seeming to find herself in the middle of the investigation into Sandra's death was very concerning for investigators. They also felt that the way she approached them, that she was oddly excited, overly excited as a matter of fact, and this was all very unusual. It seemed like a put on to detectives. In further talking to her, investigators gathered a little bit more information about where she was the afternoon Sandra disappeared. She told them that she was at the church putting up decorations in her Sunday school classroom and she said she was there alone, so there would be no one else to corroborate her story. And that was kind of confirmed because she had made a phone call from the church during the time Sandra was last seen. But the phone call she made was to the manager's office at the Orchard Estates to report the piece of luggage having been stolen from her driveway. So, for the moment, investigators were going to take that as a partial alibi. Huckabee did give consent for agents to search her car, and what they found piqued their interest. In it, they found a blue post-it. On it had been written three words, but those three words were heavily scribbled out. The FBI sent the note to their forensics lab to see if they would be able to decipher what was written under those scribbles. They were able to look at the post-it under a variety of different lighting, and they were able to isolate the three words that were written beneath the scribbles. And those three words were very ominous. Bachetti Road, Whitehall Road, and Water. That is the same intersection written on the note Huckabee found. Investigators are beginning to suspect that she may have been the one who wrote that note and then pretended to have found it. After that, they searched her bedroom in her grandparents' mobile home and they found more incriminating evidence. Specifically, a notebook that she had tucked away underneath her nightstand. It was a small, spiral-bound notebook and it appeared to be the same type of paper as the note Huckabee supposedly found and it had one page ripped out. When they sent that notebook to the forensics lab, they were able to see the indentations from the anonymous note on the next blank page using alternate light sources when examining it. It became pretty clear to investigators that Huckabee was the one who wrote that note with the directions on where to find Sandra. But what did that mean and why did she do it? Is this pointing to her wanting to inject herself into the investigation? Does Huckabee perhaps want attention drawn to herself? Does she want to be a major player in this case unfolding in the neighborhood? Or is there more to it than that? Something worse? Is it perhaps she is trying to figure out what the investigators know about the case? Is she trying to get them to talk to her to see if they're onto a suspect? But while she is seeming to be cooperative with investigators, seeming to want to help, she begins pointing fingers at other neighbors in the Orchard Estates. One in particular, a man who, according to Huckabee, would have Sandra over to his house and he would play board games with her or just want to hang out or whatever. But she also tells investigators that he had actually involved himself 
in another concerning event that took place at the estates that involved another little girl who lived there. This other little girl, seven years old at the time of the incident, had been drugged. And I will get into much more detail about that a little bit later. And this neighbor had offered to take the mother and the little girl to the emergency room when it was discovered something was wrong with her. And while at the hospital, when police arrived to investigate this drugging incident and make a report, the man abruptly left without any explanation. And police found his behavior to be kind of shady. So after learning of all of this, investigators searched his home and his truck and in doing so, they brought in cadaver dogs to sniff around his vehicle. They seemed to alert to a smell inside of it, but when they searched his car, there was no trace of what might have happened to Sandra. It was a false hit by the cadaver dogs. And if you're thinking what I'm thinking, then you're thinking that there seems to be an inordinate number of suspects living in the Orchard Estates. Like I was saying in the beginning of the episode, you never know who your neighbors are, what they've done, or what they're capable of. And the kids in the Orchard Estates were allowed to roam around without a care in the world, and all the while, right? Well, it gets even worse. Residents are continuing to point fingers at some more shady characters that they think might have had something to do with Sandra's disappearance. What I don't get is when Sandra goes missing, all of a sudden, neighbors are starting to look funny at one another and start telling investigators that this guy looks suspicious or that guy acts weird. But where was all this concern about your suspicious weird neighbors before Sandra disappeared? It's very troubling to think that people were actually aware that some of their neighbors were shady and yet have this apparent false sense of security. Or perhaps they never thought that it could ever happen to them. But like I kind of alluded to earlier, nobody wants to live in constant fear. Maybe many of us would rather give people the benefit of the doubt. Well, as I was saying, neighbors started putting their fingers at another couple of residents of the estates. There was a man who lived there with his wife and his stepson. When police questioned them, they admitted to having some provocative pictures of Sandra on their phones. They also admitted that they invited Sandra over frequently and that she'd been in their bedroom. Investigators searched their home and they discovered some child pornography on their computers. And I'm sorry, this is going to be really disgusting, but they also found a stuffed animal that is admittedly used for masturbation. I really don't know what that means and frankly, I don't want to know. My first thought is, why would these guys admit to all this stuff? But then I immediately realized that because if they were trying to hide this incriminating evidence and if they get found out, they're going to look super suspicious to police if they found all the evidence on their own. They might have gotten in trouble for the child pornography, but that's not nearly as bad as finding yourself suspected of kidnapping, possibly a sexual assault, possibly a murder. And as it would turn out, these two guys didn't have any criminal history against children at all. One week passed since the last time Sandra was seen skipping along on that surveillance footage. Investigators were working tirelessly to follow leads in this case. As you can see, they have no shortage of suspects, which makes this case that much more complicated. So in order to begin eliminating them one by one, 
Investigators decide to bring each one of the suspects they've spoken to into police headquarters for a polygraph examination. The first person they brought in was that man that I told you about first, the one who had been in the pool with Sandra, who over-affectionately gave her a kiss. Not only did he pass the polygraph test, his alibi was legit too. That neighbor acting strange at the emergency room with the child that had been drugged, he was up next. He passed the test too, but he really didn't have much of an alibi. Next up was the stepdad and stepson with the pictures of Sandra on their cell phones. They both failed the same question, if they had anything to do with Sandra's disappearance. But just as investigators were beginning to scratch each of those men off their list of suspects, a disturbing discovery is made. The suitcase. 11 days after Sandra Cantu mysteriously vanished from her home in Tracy, California, on April 7, 2009, two employees at that dairy farm on Bachetti and Whitehall spotted a suitcase floating in the sewage pond exactly where the note had said the suitcase would be. Authorities were alerted, and everybody hurried to get to the dairy. They arrived to see the suitcase floating near the edge of the pond, and they desperately wanted to know if she was in there or not, but they were not going to open that suitcase there at the scene. They did not want to do anything to contaminate the suitcase or any potential evidence that might be inside especially microscopic evidence such as fibers, hairs, or potential DNA. Anything that might connect the person who did this to the suitcase. The only other thing they were able to observe on the outside of the suitcase was that the zippers were tied together with some sort of white string. Investigators, having to wade through that thick sewage runoff, carefully lifted the suitcase out of the water and placed it into a body bag. They could tell right away, based on the weight of the thing, that something was inside. Not only that, once they got it out of the water, before they zipped it up into the body bag, they were able to smell that distinct odor. The odor that is only associated with death. The suitcase was carefully brought to the San Joaquin County Medical Examiner's Office. The coroner gingerly cut the white string that was holding those two zippers together and collected it as evidence. It's going to prove to be one of the most important pieces of evidence in this case, that little tiny piece of string. The medical examiner slowly unzipped the suitcase and opened it. Inside he found a little girl curled up inside big enough to hold a child, right? Dental records and the clothing the child was wearing confirmed that it was indeed Sandra inside that suitcase. Investigators are devastated. They had been running on the sheer hope of finding Sandra alive somewhere, but those hopes were gone. So now, needing to push their devastation aside, they regroup and refocus on bringing the person who did this to Sandra to justice. The medical examiner found that Sandra was still fully clothed in the same clothes that she was wearing when she was last seen on the surveillance footage. 
As for Sandra's autopsy, her toxicology reports indicated that she was drugged with a very potent anti-anxiety drug called benzodiazepine. As for injuries to her body, she did not appear to have very many except for one small cut on the inside of her mouth and an abrasion on one of her elbows. It was determined that Sandra was sedated with the benzodiazepine and she died of asphyxiation. It was also discovered that Sandra was sexually assaulted, but there was something strange about the sexual assault. There was something unusual as to the angle the assault took place, which led the medical examiner to reach the conclusion that the assault was committed with a foreign object. So this meant that after she was assaulted, the person who did this put her clothes back on, which is something that doesn't happen in cases similar to this. For FBI profilers, what the redressing of the victim means is that the killer was someone that Sandra knew fairly well, that it was perhaps someone who maybe felt some level of guilt or remorse for what they'd done and didn't want Sandra to be found without her clothes on. Seems like such a contradiction, doesn't it? You plan the subduction, you drug the child, you strangle her, you assault her, and then you feel remorse and want to make her presentable? I've heard that before, but it's hard to imagine someone putting all of that together in a series of actions. One part of this discovery of Sandra that really tugged at my heartstrings, listening to one of the special agents on the case, a man named Marcus Knudsen, talking about staying with Sandra. He stayed with her after she was taken out of the suitcase. He stayed with her when she was taken to get x-rays and he stayed with her until she was brought into the morgue. He was so saddened and hurt by her brutal death, and because she had spent 11 days alone and in the dark, locked in that suitcase, submerged in that sewage, he just didn't want to leave her alone anymore. He stayed with her for as long as he could. Sandra's case had now gone from a missing child to a homicide, and the chief of the Tracy Police Department, who incidentally had only been chief for about two months, but did have an extensive background in law enforcement, she was the one that had to face Sandra's family and give them the heartbreaking news. And when they heard it, I probably don't even have to describe their reactions, the cries and the sobbing, the complete disbelief that Sandra was gone. The chief cried too. How could she not? I know I wouldn't have been able to hold back the tears either. But now it was time to find Sandra's killer. And with the discovery of Sandra in that suitcase, the woman who kept injecting herself into the narrative became the prime suspect. It wasn't difficult to put those pieces of evidence together. It was just a matter of finding Sandra's body to confirm what they had been suspicious of all along. Huckabee's bizarre behavior. This was her suitcase that she had reported stolen. It was found exactly in the spot where that note had said it could be found in. And she was determined to have been the one to write that note. Clearly this woman had a hand in Sandra's death. And as strong as this evidence was against Huckabee, it was still circumstantial. Investigators wanted more than this. They wanted more than a few circumstances that pointed to her. 
They wanted to build a strong, rock-solid case against this woman. And for that, they wanted physical evidence tying Huckabee to this crime. They can't afford to take any chances. They were determined to nail her. One of the first things investigators wanted to do was to administer a polygraph test on Huckabee. But before they had the chance to, they discovered that Huckabee had been hospitalized after an apparent suicide attempt. I've realized over the last couple of weeks that we've seemed to be talking a lot about suicide, haven't we? First with Lana Clarkson, then last week with Ugg de la Plaza, and now here again with Melissa Huckabee. In her attempt, she reportedly tried to swallow three razor blades just hours before she was about to be polygraphed. From what I could glean from court documents, it appears that she successfully swallowed at least one of the razor blades and was hospitalized for internal bleeding. Later on, Huckabee would try to explain that the attempt was an accident that occurred while she was sleepwalking. Investigators saw it differently, however. They viewed it as an attempt to avoid arrest by causing herself to be hospitalized instead. And furthermore, they saw it as likely a consciousness of guilt on the part of Huckabee. This, coupled with the note that she had planted leading to the location of Sandra's body, they figure it's either that, feelings of remorse, or a desperate cry for attention. What do you guys think? As we go through this story, I did want you to be thinking about something, a motive, because at the end, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And if you have the chance to get on social media and reach out to me in time, I might be able to include your theories and opinions, as there is going to be an addendum episode to this early in the week. I'm not going to be able to get to everything in one episode. So thus far, I'm really not sure what to make of Huckabee's behavior. In a little bit, we are going to delve further into her history to see what was going on in her life culminating in this tragedy. Maybe there we will find some sort of explanations as to why. Because understanding why, and really wanting to know what you guys out there listening think as to why, is a big reason why I wanted to talk about Sandra's story. In the meantime, while Huckabee was hospitalized, investigators turned their sights towards gathering as much information and evidence about their suspect. They soon came to find that she had a very, very troubled past. Three months earlier in January of 2009, Huckabee had just been convicted of petty theft purportedly at a local Target in November of 2008. Although I did read that she supposedly claimed that the charge was against someone else with the same name as her, despite the conviction being on her record. She was actually scheduled to appear in court that April 17, 2009, just three weeks after Sandra's disappearance to begin completion of a court-mandated mental health program, which was a condition of the three years of probation she was placed on. According to court documents in that case, she attempted to claim in court that she was incompetent to stand trial for the petty theft charge because of mental illness, so the judge ordered her to undergo mental health examinations in order to determine competency. She was found to be competent, so she decided to plead no contest. I also discovered, according to court records, that Huckabee had been previously convicted of another petty theft charge in November of 2006 in a Los Angeles County Superior Court in Bellflower, California, 
which incidentally is a city no more than three miles or so away from where I'm recording this. Huckabee was reportedly raised in Southern California, very, very close to where I reside. While these past run-ins with the law pale in comparison to what Huckabee is now facing in Sandra's case, these were only a couple of incidents in her past that were beginning to paint the portrait of a very disturbed person. Two years earlier in the summer of 2007, Huckabee was a person of interest in a pair of arson incidents at a home she resided in located in the city of La Palma, a small city just inside of Orange County, also less than two miles away from yours truly. According to the La Palma Police Department, and both of the fires were determined to be arson, Huckabee's roommate at the time, Evelyn Lloyd, said that the fires occurred eight days apart in the home that they rented together. She said that investigators in the arson case discovered a baby's bottle filled with gasoline and a letter with some sorts of threats written in it and some crumpled up newspapers stuffed through a small window of her bedroom. And it was actually Evelyn Lloyd that was arrested and jailed on the suspicion of committing the first arson fire. However, the second fire occurred while she was still sitting in county jail. So Evelyn was eventually released from jail and the charges dropped. Huckabee was never charged. And if I were to speculate on these arson cases, it was probably going to be difficult to prove Huckabee's involvement in the case, especially since having first charged Evelyn Lloyd with the arson, yet another fire started while she was incarcerated. None of that makes for a good case against anyone. So as far as I know, the arsons are unsolved, but Huckabee was always a person of interest. I can't be sure, but I can imagine after these arsons at her home, this may have been what brought Huckabee to come live with her grandparents in Tracy, California, just to get away from the proverbial heat in Southern California. Huckabee, according to her family, struggled with mental health and instability issues. She had been divorced from the father of her daughter and apparently wasn't coping with that very well. Investigators found that she had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and struggled with bouts of anxiety and she became dependent on medications to try and balance out emotionally. She had a history of overdosing on her medications as well. It was discovered that around the same time Huckabee was pleading no contest to those petty theft charges three months earlier, she was accused by another neighbor in Orchard Estates of drugging their daughter as well. Remember, I referred to this incident earlier when investigators were looking at suspects in Sandra's disappearance. That incident where the man had accompanied a mom and her child to the emergency room and then quickly left when police arrived, that was the mother's boyfriend. That was this drugging incident. The mother of that child had made the accusation against Huckabee at the time. She claimed that Huckabee took her daughter out of the Orchard Estates without her knowledge or permission. When Huckabee brought the child home, she was behaving bizarrely, unable to stand up straight. She was falling over, slurring her words, and basically lost all ability to control her muscles. She was brought into the emergency room by her mom and her mother's boyfriend. Doctors performed a battery of tests and the toxicology reports revealed that the child had benzodiazepine in her system. The girl's mom told police about Huckabee having taken her child without her permission and returning her in this state. At the time, police asked Huckabee about the incident, but she denied the charge that she had given the girl any sorts of drugs. Police decided to take her word for it. An unlikely suspect, right? Yeah, 
I can't blame the police for that. I get the feeling that Huckabee came across really well. She was bright and well-spoken. According to some reports I read, she was able to mask her troubles flawlessly. And even if they hadn't really believed her, it wasn't likely going to be something they could prove. No charges were ever filed in the drugging incident. It also came to light during the investigation that two months after Huckabee was accused of drugging the first little girl, she attempted to do it again on March 2nd, 2009, only 25 days before Sandra would go missing. This time, the victim was 36-year-old Daniel Plowman, a man who had dated Huckabee for some time. Late that night, on the 2nd of March, Huckabee offered Daniel a drink that she'd allegedly mixed some sort of drug, likely the same one she had used on both the children she's been known or at least suspected of having drugged, the benzodiazepine. She told him it was some sort of herbal supplement, and despite it tasting kind of gross, he drank it anyway. A few hours later, around 1.30 in the morning the next day, he was found passed out at the wheel of his car. Just after he had gone through the drive-thru at a local McDonald's about five minutes away from Huckabee's home. Right after he had ordered his food and paid, he just passed out after exiting the drive-thru. He briefly began to come around, but accidentally drove into a wall, as he was still groggy from the drugs. McDonald's employees contacted police, and he was arrested on suspicion of DUI and his car was towed. Later, Tess revealed that he wasn't drunk at all, and he was released without being charged. I'm under the impression that he wasn't tested at the time for any other substances, and it isn't clear if the connection was made at the time to the drink that Huckabee had given him. But what does this mean? I think it means that Huckabee was testing the waters to see what kind of an effect her anxiety drug was going to have on others, to see how long it would take for them to pass out and how much she was going to need to administer. As the news began to spread through the town, and the whole state of California really, a resident, who happened to be a member of the United States Marine Corps, came forward with some information about an incident he had witnessed on the day that Sandra disappeared. He was able to, in no uncertain terms, place Huckabee at the location where Sandra was found in that suitcase. This man lived on Whitehall Road, and he was on his way to a local restaurant with his wife that evening for dinner when he spotted a vehicle parked along the shoulder of the road with its passenger side door left open. He decided to stop and see if the driver needed any help, at which point Huckabee appeared walking back up the embankment towards the road where her vehicle was parked. He had asked her if she was okay or if she needed any help, and she explained that she needed to go to the bathroom and she couldn't wait any longer. Once the news broke about Huckabee's alleged involvement in Sandra's murder, this witness was able to put two and two together. He was able to accurately describe Huckabee. He was able to accurately describe her vehicle. And based on the time he and his wife made it to dinner that evening, he was able to pinpoint just about the exact time that he saw Huckabee emerge from that embankment. He could not have known the truth as to what she was actually doing down there. But as intriguing and damning as this witness's account of having seen Huckabee there, he didn't actually see her tossing a piece of luggage into the pond. Investigators wanted somehow to tie Huckabee 
with physical evidence to that piece of luggage and to Sandra. The next day, they went ahead and obtained a warrant to conduct a search of the church at which Huckabee's grandfather was a pastor and where she herself taught Sunday school. Because she had placed that phone call from the church to report the luggage stolen, it was suspected that since the church was empty at that time of day that Friday, that this was likely the location that the murder of Sandra took place. There, Huckabee would have all the privacy she needed to do the things that she was accused of doing. There were two things investigators were specifically looking for to connect the church to Sandra. One was a match to the string that was used to tie the zippers together on the suitcase. The other was the foreign object used to assault Sandra. Investigators found both. And some of the following is disturbing, but to tell this story, there's really no other way around it. First of all, investigators found the strings used to draw the mini blinds in Huckabee's classroom were cut and retied. That drawstring was the exact match to the piece of string used to tie those zippers. The second item, that foreign object was more challenging to find. That was going to require the use of alternate light sources in order to cause bodily fluids present in the church to fluoresce. They went through that church top to bottom, looking for something to light up under the alternate light, and they finally found it. In the kitchen, they found a metal rolling pin with one of the handles bent. On it, they were able to observe a red smudge on the handle. They collected the rolling pin and sent it to the lab for testing. At this point, investigators were going to have to wait for those test results to come back to determine if there were any fingerprints to be found on it and what exactly that red smudge on it was. Remember, during all this time, Huckabee had been hospitalized for that attempted suicide. She remained hospitalized for several days and she hadn't been placed under arrest yet. Investigators wanted to make sure they had a surefire case against her before doing so. But before they were able to get those lab results back, Huckabee was discharged from the hospital and investigators were worried. Her grandparents all but packed up all their stuff and their great-granddaughter and they got the heck out of Dodge. The mobile home that they resided in on Orchard Estates was virtually empty. Police decided that they needed to not only keep an eye on Huckabee, but also an ear. They were surveilling her around the clock, and they put a wiretap on her phone. They would have to keep this up until they got those lab results. A couple of days after Huckabee was released, investigators, while listening in on a phone call she'd made, heard something that caused them to completely freak out. She called Sandra's house and asked her mom if Sandra's sister could come over and play with her daughter. How insane is that? Can you imagine what investigators are thinking when they heard this? That's why I said freaked out because I just imagined that's what happened when they heard this on the wiretap. Huckabee was actually trying to get Sandra's own sister to come over to play with her daughter who wasn't even there. If you're thinking that this woman is actually trying to find another victim, then you're thinking the same thing that the Tracy police are thinking as they're listening to this. To them, it seems Huckabee thinks that she isn't a suspect in the case. She obviously has no clue as to everything investigators have dug up on her, that they are watching her, that they're listening to her, 
that they're on to her. She thinks her innocent Sunday school teacher front is working to throw investigators off her trail. And she just has the audacity to call Sandra's mom and invite her older sister over for a play date. You see, Sandra's mom has no idea Huckabee is a suspect. No clue at all. She had no reason to. So naturally, she sees no reason to not allow her daughter to go over and play with Madison. She probably figures she's got to try and keep life as normal for his kids as possible. What she doesn't know is she's about to send her daughter right into the home of the woman suspected of killing her other daughter. Thank goodness. And I can't say it enough. Thank goodness police had the foresight to put that tap on Huckabee's phone and keep her under close watch. Detectives were quickly ordered by the surveillance team to get over to the Huckabee home quickly, get over there and knock on her door. Fortunately, they got there before Sandra's sister did. Detectives kind of tried to play it off all coy that they were there to ask her to come down to the police station to make a formal statement as to any information she had about Sandra's death. I can imagine that they tried to make her feel like an important part of the investigation because she readily went with them. As far as investigators were concerned, the call she made to Sandra's house was the last straw. They were done playing games with Melissa Huckabee. This wasn't going to be a trip to the police station to make a formal witness statement. This was going to be an interrogation in an effort to get a confession out of her. Remember, they don't have their lab results back yet. But they can't wait anymore in light of her attempt to lure another child into her home. They decided they needed to confront her with what they did have in the way of evidence against her. They were going to use that to let her know that they know she was responsible for Sandra's death. First, they confronted her with the blue post-it note that they found in her car. The one with the three words scribbled out. And they just didn't bring in the note itself. They brought in a poster-sized blown-up picture of the post-it with the words highlighted to stand out above the scribbles. Bacchetti Road, Whitehall Road, and Water. They told her in the interrogation that the person who jotted down those words on that note was the same person, had to be the same person, the only person, in fact, who knew Sandra's location. For five long hours, Huckabee denied all the accusations investigators were making about her involvement in Sandra's death. But finally, the interrogation had been dragging on and on. They decided to confront her with the two witnesses, that Marine and his wife who resided on Whitehall Road. But they had come forward and told investigators that they saw her car parked along the road at precisely between 5.30 and 5.40 that afternoon of March 27th and that they saw her emerge from the embankment. And the interrogating officer asked what those people asked her. Huckabee began to sob, answering that they wanted to know if she was okay, and she told him that she was going to the bathroom. At this point, Huckabee was covering her face, sobbing into her hands. The officer asked her what she was doing, and with that, the confession began pouring out of Huckabee. She cried that it was an accident. In an attempt to go along with what she was saying, so she'll keep talking, he told her that he knows it was an accident and accidents happen. Huckabee again denies killing Sandra. She began to explain that it was all an innocent game of hide and seek and that Sandra was playing with her daughter that somehow 
this all went terribly wrong. She claimed that she became sidetracked, and at some point, she forgot that Sandra had been playing at her home. She claimed that the suitcase was in her car and it was loaded up with supplies for her classroom, and that she had it packed with decorations and things that she wanted to bring to her Sunday school classroom. Supposedly having completely forgotten that Sandra was over, she drove off to the church to work on her classroom. When she went to retrieve the suitcase from her car, she suddenly realized that it was heavier than it should have been. She then said she opened it up and was horrified to find that Sandra was in there, and it did not appear that she was alive or breathing. The officer asked Huckabee what Sandra's appearance was like, and she described her as being pale in color. Now, what Huckabee said next, I don't know if it was a slip of the tongue, but she stated, quote, and then I killed her, unquote. The officer said, huh? But suddenly, Huckabee changed what she said and states, I thought she was dead, and then I panicked. I tried to wake her up, and she wouldn't wake up. She was dead, and I killed her, and I didn't want anybody to think that I killed her. I didn't know what else to do. And then she claimed she attempted to revive the little girl by administering CPR, but it was too late. So she said she placed Sandra back in the suitcase and zipped it up and decided to cover up what she'd done by dumping it and Sandra into that sewage runoff pond on Bachetti and Whitehall. There's one thing that Huckabee refused to fess up to. She refused to admit that she'd sexually assaulted Sandra. But at that point, officers didn't care about getting into all those details. They had enough to place Huckabee under arrest for the murder of little Sandra. Two weeks after Sandra Cantu went missing, and just a few days after she was finally found in that pond, her confessed killer was behind bars. One can only imagine the shock and betrayal that Sandra's family felt when they found out who was responsible for killing Sandra. Melissa Huckabee, Sandra's best friend's mom, their trusted friend and neighbor. Of all the shady individuals investigators came across while searching for the person who'd done this, all the while, it was her. To further bolster the case against Huckabee, investigators got the results of the forensic test conducted on the evidence found in her home, as well as the evidence found in the church. And what it told them was Sandra's death was not an accident as Huckabee had claimed. The biological evidence on the metal rolling pin found in the church was a match to Sandra's DNA. Sandra did not attend the church or the Sunday school. There was no reason for her DNA to be present anywhere in that building. Investigators were also able to confirm that the piece of string that was used to tie the zippers together was an exact match to the mini blind drawstrings in Huckabee's Sunday school classroom. There was also some pretty damning evidence found on Huckabee's laptop. Evidence that showed that it was a thing that she had been planning for quite some time. The forensic computer analyst was able to find that Huckabee had searched a news article about a child who was murdered by her grandfather and then disposed of by placing the child in a suitcase and tossing it into a river. With all this evidence, investigators were able to put the pieces of this puzzling case together in order to present a timeline of events that afternoon when Sandra Cantu was murdered. Beginning at the time when Sandra was last seen on that surveillance footage, she was seen walking off the frame of the video at 4 p.m. She looked into the direction, and 
then seemed to begin moving in the direction of Huckabee's home. It is speculated that Melissa saw Sandra walking past her and got her attention. She somehow convinced her to go with her to the church, perhaps to help her decorate her classroom or something along those lines. We can only guess. Sandra, of course, knowing what we know about her, was more than happy to help her friend's mom. Eight minutes later, Huckabee's car is seen driving past the view of the surveillance cameras, and Sandra can be seen in the passenger seat. When they arrived at the church, it is speculated that Huckabee gave Sandra a drink that was laced with her anti-anxiety drug, benzodiazepine, and a prescription bottle of which was found in her purse. After Sandra passed out, that is when prosecutors believe Huckabee injured her and murdered her. The forensic pathologist found a number of injuries, including a cut on the inside of her lower lip and a scrape on her left elbow. Sandra also had injuries to her genitalia that were consistent with the diameter of the rolling pin. Also found was a ripped piece of cloth or clothing that was tied around her head, knotted in a way to form a makeshift noose. This cloth was stained with blood. Sandra's cause of death was determined to be homicidal asphyxiation. Huckabee strangled the life out of Sandra. She then redressed the child and placed her inside the suitcase, zipped it up, cut a piece of the mini blind cord off, and used it to tie the zippers of the suitcase together. Around 5 p.m., realizing that she needed to account for the suitcase if and when Sandra was to be recovered, Huckabee placed that phone call to the Orchard Estates property manager and reported to him that her suitcase had been stolen from her driveway. She then loaded that suitcase containing Sandra's body into her car and drove a couple miles away near that intersection of Bacchetti and Whitehall roads. She pulled off to the side of the road, unloaded the suitcase from her vehicle, and leaving that passenger side door open, she carried that suitcase down that embankment and tossed it, and Sandra, into that sewage pond. Sometime between 5.30 and 5.40 p.m., that resident who lived on Whitehall headed to dinner with his wife. He spotted the vehicle pulled off to the side and stopped to offer assistance. When he and his wife saw Huckabee emerge from the embankment, they asked her if she needed help, and she explained that she stopped to use the bathroom. So the witnesses and Huckabee went about their evenings. From start to finish, Huckabee took a little more than an hour and a half to lure Sandra to the church, drug her, assault her, strangle her, and throw her away like garbage. So, dreamers, I'm going to end this right now. I am recording this on St. Patrick's Day, and I'm behind schedule, and I don't want to rush through the conclusion of this story. So, I'm going to bring that to you early this week, likely on Tuesday, at the latest Wednesday. I will go through some of the court proceedings. Fortunately, that isn't very long. But more importantly, I want to talk about why Melissa Huckabee did what she did. And there is something important I was hoping you guys would do after you listen to this, and hopefully before I record the conclusion of this story. If you can jump on social media, either on Facebook or on Twitter, or even email me, 
and give me your opinions as to why you think Huckabee took Sandra's life in the manner in which she did. I have a few of my own theories and I will include that in the follow-up to this, but I'd also like to go ahead and include your theories and ideas too, if you're able to share those with me in time. I am going to go ahead and end this now. I'll go over the usual housekeeping stuff in the conclusion. Thank you for listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. I will be back shortly with the end of the story. And until then, happy St. Patrick's Day and sweet dreams. <laughs>